bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by Historic Palmyra, located in Palmyra, New York, along the Erie Canal. They have five museums. It's one destination in the heart of the Erie Canal country. And the Sodus Bay Lighthouse Museum and Historical Society located in Sodus Bay, New York, along the shores of Lake Ontario. And one more quick thing before we begin, we've been asked how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. Hell's Kitchen, Five Points, Murderer's Row, Baxter Street, and Mulberry Bend, to name a few, had served as homes to the city's booming immigrant population. From every shore of Europe and the Far East, they came in droves, arriving with everything they owned. As historian Robert Hughes noted, the 10th Ward of Lower Manhattan the Lower East Side around Orchard Street, had, by the 1890s, the highest concentration of people in the world. 344,000 people packed into one square mile, or nine square yards each, including street and pavement space. They were, it was thought, to be 11,000 sweatshops, turning out clothing, cigars, furniture, and tinware. And one of those sweatshops was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And to help us dive into this period of New York City and the history of immigration is Professor Hasia Diner. She is the professor of the Hebrew and Judaic Studies and director of the Goldstein Gorin Center for American Jewish History at New York University. She has authored several books, including We Remember with Reverence and Love, 
American Jews and the myth of silence after the Holocaust. And also, Lower East Side Memories, the Jewish place in America. And Professor Diner, thank you very much and welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for having invited me. It's really an honor, oh. and I'm looking forward to um, our time together on uh, this show. Great, great. Well, you know, let's do something a little different. Uh, I know we're here to talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory uh, fire and those events, but I, I, I was hoping that you might be able to tell us a little bit about your book, We Remember with Reverence and Love, American Jews and the Myth of Silence After the Holocaust. What, what exactly is the book about? Right. So um, many um, historians, and indeed I would say most, those who have studied the post-war period, that is the period right after World War II, and I'd say many who weren't historians but are interested in American Jewish life in that period after the war and into the 1950s and early 1960s, have said that when American Jews entered into that post-war period, they did not want to talk about the Holocaust, that it was something that was embarrassing because it was so different than anything their other neighbors, you know, the other Americans had gone through. It was shameful. It was, they didn't have a vocabulary for it. They kind of thought of it as something, well, it happened there. We weren't involved. So let's not make that part of our communal culture. And also, let's definitely not talk about it when we are involved with other Americans, that is, those who are not Jewish. Um, it's just really too, too unpleasant to talk about. And so this was the prevailing, we might say, truth, and everybody accepted that this was what exactly happened. And in uh, the late, uh, in the 1990s, at the end of that decade, as we moved into the 20th century, a very important book came out by the historian Peter Novick, uh, somebody whose work I really admired, called The Holocaust in American Life. And he said very clearly in that the Holocaust had no place among, among American Jews uh, in that era. And, um, you know, I read the book and I read what others had said, and it struck me first as just not an accurate, as not accurate. And it really didn't bear any resemblance, frankly, to the world that I had grown up in, which was American Jewish life in that post-war period. And um, not that I knew the answer at that point because I hadn't studied it, but it just smacked me as wrong. And um, I decided, well, let me let me just take a, a crack at this and see what I could find. And I thought maybe I'll write an article about this and see, you know, maybe maybe Novik was right. Maybe my kind of hunch is is wrong, which is always a possibility. And what I found, however, was that my hunch was absolutely right. It wasn't uh, any longer a hunch, but rather in uh, wherever American Jews lived in that period, whatever organization, institutions, if they were adults or teenagers, or if they lived in New York, or if they lived in Kansas City or Charleston, South Carolina, if they were relatively new immigrants, if they were two, three, four generations American, if they were uh, left of center, if they were center of center, involved with religious life, if they were involved with just sort of 
general community life, if they read a, a local Jewish newspaper, there was no place in that world that the Holocaust was not talked about and memorialized in one way or another. And um, there was no particular agreement as to what was the most uh, appropriate way to do so. And there was a lot of uh, discussion about what would be an appropriate fitting memorial. But despite the lack of uh, agreement, um, there was uh, absolutely no question that this that American Jews in this period considered that they had been fundamentally shaped and impacted by the Holocaust, and that it was their responsibility as, um, in a sense, the people who now lived in the um, the largest and most uh, well-endowed Jewish community in the world, that it was their responsibility to talk about it. And uh, frankly, to use it to advance a um, set of political concerns that they had in the post-war period. And so that um, it was it was certainly not the only thing they talked about, but the Holocaust was front and center part of their communal life. So that's so it began with a hunch and ended up with a very um, big and award-winning book. And the book, frankly, could have been much larger because I had... Um, vast amounts of material I couldn't use because the book could, you know, the publisher said enough, it's too big already, but it was an enormous um, uh, discourse. It was a more an enormous body of material that I found that made it very clear that um, everybody else um, who had written about this had been wrong. Fascinating. Well, you know, in a way, we've started at the end. <laughs> and yes, yeah. uh, so what I would, yes, but I, I love to do that sometimes. Um, so let's go back to the 19th century and Jewish immigration to New York. When did this occur and, and where did these people come from? Okay, so for one thing, it was uh, Jewish immigration to New York was a continuous process. And it, uh, it really begins in the middle part of the 19th century and just gets bigger and more intense with the passage of time into the latter part of the century earlier in the century, that is in the 1840s, 50s, most of the immigrants were coming from, let's call it Central Europe, from uh, the German-speaking lands. But by the 1860, the late 1860s, the source of the migration begins to shift, and Jews were coming from uh, further east, uh, from parts of the um, Tsarist Empire, from places like Lithuania, and from parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, so it was continuous, but the huge takeoff, which is, I think, what you want to know, um, and from, from the Tsarist Empire, um, really begins in the 1870s. And it is, was dependent on um, a few factors. And you know, one was um, conditions at home which was um, increased poverty, overpopulation, as there were too many young Jews competing for shrinking economic resources. So poverty was growing, the absence of uh, meaningful opportunities uh, back home, um, certainly the increase of um, anti-Jewish violence was not irrelevant, but it wasn't the main factor. It was a factor. And so conditions at home were increasingly problematic. Um, but probably more important is what was going on um, first with international um, 
uh, oceanic transportation and the um, the fact that the ocean, the the Atlantic journey was cut um, dramatically into just a little bit over a week with the um, advent of steam travel. So they weren't they, so the journeys became much more safer, more reliable, faster, cheaper, and um, the ships began to hold huge numbers of people. Uh, the sailing ships accommodated small numbers, um, relatively small numbers at any one time. These uh, steam uh, ships, and I think the one we all know the best is the Titanic, which had uh, immigrants in steerage in the very bottom, uh, you know, could hold vast numbers. And so um, the uh, improvements in in transportation technology was a huge factor. And then um, also the takeoff of um, the garment industry in New York. And um, the industrialization of the United States um, brought, in, in your description before, you talked about people from every country uh, in Europe and the Far East, although that's more complicated because of in the 1880s, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, but from Europe, the uh, numbers just absolutely skyrocket with industrial development. And for Jewish immigrants, the real draw was uh, New York. And um, the development of the uh, the ready-made garment industry, women's clothing in particular, and um, it's one reason why we um, what one of the um, things that made Jewish immigration kind of distinctive was the degree to which um, the majority were just really not interested in going beyond New York City. Okay, which doesn't mean that people didn't go to Chicago, Philadelphia and Albany and Rochester and smaller towns, Baltimore, uh, Kansas City, but um, no other immigration was so, uh, one might say, single-mindedly drawn uh, to New York City because it was in New York City that the previous generation of um, Jewish immigrants, those who'd come earlier, developed the, um, the, gar- the ready-made garment industry. And so... We segue uh, logically into the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which would have been one of, what, hundreds uh, or perhaps thousands of the so-called sweatshops. Okay, Um, so can I stop you there? So the Triangle was, in fact, not a sweatshop. It's very important to Mm -hmm. just put the history of the fire and Triangle in a context, which was by the early 20th century employers, the factory, the, the, the contractors, and the people who owned, who were making the profit off of garment making, for all sorts of reasons, um, began to move away from um, literal sweatshops, which were defined as home-based units of production. So somebody's apartment would have been what you would call a sweatshop, where people who, who rented an apartment would invite uh, however many people, 10, 15, you know, people to come and sit in their apartment and sew. And uh, at the end of the day, they would go, they would leave and uh, they'd go back to wherever they lived. Uh, in, in the sweatshops, um, the uh, owner um, and often the owners or the owner, but it's both the husband and the wife. And their children also uh, work sewing and pressing and doing all the many project, you know, chores involved in uh, producing this clothing. Uh, the manufacturers uh, decided to turn to the factory system, where there would be uh, designated spaces, not in somebody's apartment, 
where much larger numbers of uh, people could be involved in uh, the, the production of clothing. And so this was a, a kind of breakthrough. And so Triangle was uh, one of the largest factories. And they, at, at the time, they were called Modern. And uh, because they were not, they were no longer these apartment-based sweatshops. And uh, so Triangle was uh, one of the uh, very largest. There was a huge strike in the um, garment industry and the women, it was in the shirtwaist trade, which was the production of women's dresses, essentially. And the strike was in 1909. It's often known as the uprising of the 20,000. 20,000 young women uh, went out on strike. And so Almost all the factory owners agreed to to um, uh, recognize the union and to agree to some level of collective bargaining. In, and um, this was called the Protocols of Peace. Okay, the one big factory that held out was Triangle. It would not sign with the union, and so there's a kind of irony that it was this horrendous fire took place in what was the um, considered uh, sort of the biggest, the most modern, uh, but most ruthless factory um, where they would not talk to the union and they would not um, sign on to the protocols of peace. So so while we do think of it as a sweatshop, and it was obviously horrid. So to say it wasn't a sweatshop doesn't mean to say it was um, a humane work environment. But, right. uh, you know, so that I'm not taking it off the hook. Uh, in terms of uh, the exploitation of the workers, but it was not a sweatshop. And it could theoretically two years earlier have entered into the um, protocols. And the, and the unions were, in fact, pressing in the protocol for safety fees, safety regulations in the factories. But since Triangle hadn't um, signed on, it wasn't obliged to follow the rules, as it were. And, you know, obviously in the process made these uh, workers vulnerable to the particular conditions that to the fire. So what happened that fateful day of the yeah. fire? Yeah. So we don't know the actual moment. Did some, did a spark fly out of one of the machines? You know, because this was now, they're using electric, electrified production. Some people say, and there was some evidence uh, that a worker had, and they like to blame the workers naturally, um, had thrown, um, you know, there was cloth all over the place, you know, discarded cloth, and obviously a kind of excellent setting for um, fire to break out, that uh, there was cloth in a trash can, and one of the workers threw a not completely extinguished cigarette butt into a trash can and um, it caught on to the um, fabric that was in there. And you know, there are people actually who later on said, you know, I was the one, you know, and felt obviously just grievously guilty for it. So the fire starts and um, the, uh, in a way, the most important thing to notice, there was no way of getting out because the employers had um, Mr. Harris and Mr. Blank, we know their names, had locked the doors from the outside. And they did this because they did not want, uh, it was a Saturday, and the girls actually kind of resented working on Saturdays. Or they, that Saturday was, you know, there was already an idea that this was a weekend, and many of these girls were actually from fairly religious Jewish homes. And they really felt badly about working on the Sabbath, uh, but they and their families needed the money. 
So uh, the uh, employers uh, locked the doors from the out. Oh, and they also didn't want um, anybody pilfering, any you know, sneaking out with cloth. Um, and so they locked the doors from the outside. And so when the fire broke out, and there were obviously no smoke alarms, there were no sprinklers that would automatically spew forth water when it met fire. And uh, so many of the girls start running down to the door at the bottom, and they can't open it. They're crushed to death, and they're screaming. And so young, it's mostly young women, although they're not quite as young as we like. We always call them girls. And Many of them were women in their, you know, in their thirties. Um, but um, they um, started essentially jumping out the windows because the fire department, which it, when it does show up, doesn't have nets and it doesn't have ladders that are high enough. And um, some of the women um, crawl out the window, and there are no fire fire escapes. And so some of the women crawl out the window and start climbing up which was a very smart thing to do because the students at the NYU Law School, which was in the adjacent and connected building, uh, were standing up there and um, kind of catching the, you know, and, and sort of rescuing these uh, women as they climbed over the, uh, up, to the, up to the roof. But most of the women who died, died because they jumped um, to their deaths, not thinking that that was, I mean, who knows what one would do and, uh, in a panicky situation like that, they thought they might be better off taking their chances falling and maybe just breaking some limbs than um, burning to death in the fire. And um, it was obviously a scene of, of, of panic because, uh, you know, who's prepared for this? They don't have fire drills. They don't have sort of preparation. On, you know, the, the employer has done nothing to prepare them for uh uh, emergencies, um, as we now have, and, and I'm sure you've been in situations where they do fire drills because they want people to have some idea of what to do um, in, in that kind of panic uh, or kind of emergency, but they had none of that. You know, the it, it, it's still considered, I believe, I don't, um, the greatest industrial accident in American history. Right. Know, the does number- the building still, does the building still stand today? Oh yes, the building is actually an NYU building, and it has a. It's um, I believe the anthropology department is housed there. So it's ironic, you know, because it's something I've been reading about and studying for a really long time, and here it is, my own employer owns that building. Right, right, um, right, right. And so um, I have been involved, in fact, for really since twenty nine, twenty oh nine in effort to get the building the building is landmark but to to get to have a proper memorial put up there and um any of your listeners who would like to um uh, contribute money um it's called remember the triangle fire and desperately looking for funding and there's a beautiful plan for a memorial that um so they have their own website that you you could go to to yeah and do that um, okay uh, so it's it's really uh, it's going to be a beautiful um, structure um, or, or installation when there's enough money. I know the the state of New York has put up some, but we're no place close to having the um, resources. And in some ways, it's a very important story, not only uh, because it's a story. It really transforms New York politics. And I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but 
it, it, it transforms the politics of the city and the state. It gives a huge boost to the union, to the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. It, uh, while the, the state does pass factory inspection, it's, um, it's never enough. And um, so that, and several of the key individuals, one of whom was Francis Perkins, who um, was a, New York, a social worker in, in New York City, actually watched this from the street. I mean, she saw what was happening. And she goes on to be the Secretary of Labor in Franklin Roosevelt and is the uh, first woman to serve on a cab in a cabinet post. And one could almost say that the Triangle Fire uh, gave birth to a huge, uh, to, to the New Deal. So it was, I'd say, up there with the um, um, draft riots during the Civil War and 9-11, you know, one of the events that really defines New York history. Well, Professor Diner, I, first of all, I can't believe our time is over. Uh, I mean, oh, okay. I, I think, we, I think I, no, really, I think we could go on for quite a while. But uh, I, I just uh, want to thank you for sharing with us your, your research and your insights into this part of uh, American history. And uh, thank you again for uh, being on Talking Hard Island. My pleasure. And really, I'm going to try to try to see if I can find it as a podcast. Very good. Okay, Goodbye thank now. you so much. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions, about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean. And we're Talking Heart Island. Music